Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is a man that needs no introduction, Mr. Warren Hurt, but I'm going to intro him anyways. Uh, he's a multi-platinum producer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and mixer, as well as an entrepreneur, business owner, and educator. Uh, he's worked with artists such as Ace Freely, Aerosmith, James Blunt, The Fray, on and on, and for movies and TV shows such as Inglorious Bastards, X Factor, Vampire Diaries, Grey's Anatomy. He's the president of the Spitfire Music Group, as well as Spitfire Studios out of Laurel Canyon, California, and is also the president of Produce Like a Pro, which is an online subscription service teaching you how to produce records with the best of them. It's also served as an A&R consultant for Epic Records, as well as Capital Records. So, safe to say, he's done a lot of stuff, and you should listen to every word he has to say. So, thanks for being here. <laughs> wow, thank you. That's, that's probably the most comprehensive introduction I've ever had in my life. I might just steal that and put it in my bio. Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to. Um, well, we do our research. We like to know who we're talking to. And, uh, and I think that it's important for our audience to know, especially in a case like yours, just how deep your history goes. Because it's impressive, man. You've done a lot of stuff. And that brings me to the first question I have, which is when you were younger, did you envision yourself having a career that I guess has so many tentacles, if you will? Or did you have one goal, like to be a producer or something? That's interesting. I, I, I often say this. I think I discovered music maybe too young. <laughs> because, What's too young? Well, I was I was eight years old and my dad bought... My, my dad's a classical music and jazz music buff. I mean... As a little kid, my memory of my father was every day, it seemed like every day, he would bring a new album into the house. And it was always incredible music that, you know, I obviously thought was commonplace at the time. You, as you know, you don't, you don't have any comparison until you get older. You don't understand how good or bad your upbringing was. But my, my father would bring home, you know, incredible Beethoven, Mussorgsky, Mozart, uh, Tchaikovsky, you know, all of this different stuff. And so I grew up surrounded by music, music, music the whole time. And then he would come home with like, oh, I've got this Joe Pass, Ella Fitzgerald record. And then we would just sit and listen to the most amazing jazz guitar with Ella Fitzgerald, the most amazing singer. And so this was just seeping into me, but never any pop music. And, and one, it was Christmas and my dad bought me a Night of the Opera by Queen. So I open up A Night of the Opera and put it on, put on my Sony headphones, my dad's big old-fashioned Sony headphones, and listen to this music. And I'm staring at all the pictures of all these guys with long hair, which where I grew up in this little village, I don't think there was a person that had long hair that wasn't a girl. So it was just like, wow, what is this? You know, this is crazy music. And so I fell in love with music, and the reason why I say too young is because obviously I didn't understand what any of these jobs were. I didn't know that Roy Thomas Baker as the producer, I, just, I was just like, oh, he's a person that's making this music. I didn't know, you know, I could, the only thing you really know is, oh, that guy sings, that guy, and plays yeah. piano, that guy plays guitar. And I knew immediately that I wanted to be Brian May. I was like, that guy's cool. Firstly, he's got this incredibly cool Afro haircut. And, <laughs> you know, as, even, as a little kid, there was no internet, of course, back in ye olden days of pre-Windows 95. Um, so um, I was basically, you know, scouring magazines, whatever I could get. In those days, it, there was a lot of, there was three main music newspapers there was the melody maker the new musical express or the nme as it was called and sounds and sounds was more of the rock one slash punk one enemy was kind of indie and melody maker was sort of all-encompassing of all genres so i would buy these 
newspapers. They were basically newspapers, but music newspapers, and read and scour looking for Queen information because they were the first band. So then, of course, you know, I, I started finding out that Brian May built his own guitar. And it took a number of years, but my father understood what I was talking about, and we built my first guitar. I just wanted to be Brian May. So so if Brian May built a guitar, then you had to do it I too. I had to because do it, yep. That's what Brian May did. And I was blessed because my father, I was very blessed. My father is a, a painter and a sculptor and, uh, and an amazing one at both. And that's what he did for a living. You can imagine what that brought in, you know, a, a typical almost musician's lifestyle of feast or famine. Um, not that I was aware as a little child. I wasn't aware that, you know, we had some money or no money. I, I didn't know. You know, you just don't when you're a child. But it meant that I had a really really talented father so when i wanted to build a guitar with him that was not a big deal he was already like building our furniture and you know built the extension on the back of our house and you know done all of that stuff so he was very gifted and he probably did 99 percent of the building <laughs> i'm not sure i've never never been able to talk to brian about this i'm not sure what the how it was actually split up between him and his father because he also was young as well i was 15 and my father built this guitar. And uh, some, some parts were definitely bought, just like Brian um, used those Burns pickups. We actually got some Schaller, uh, sorry, some DiMarzio pickups, which were, you know, a couple of decades later, you know, those were the, uh, um, the 80s pickups of choice where, you know, in, when Brian was building his guitar in the 60s, there wasn't as much choice. But other than that, yeah, Schaller machine heads, because you try you know without the proper um equipment it would be pretty tough to build uh, machine heads properly but uh which i think also is what brian did as well they did they they bought machine heads so that was that was my baptism it was like just being a guitar player but i will say what led into production long term was the music that i fell in love with and it's purely because of my father playing classical and jazz because i was listening to this you know, very harmonically, melodically rich music. Because of that kind of music, it meant that I gravitated, initially gravitated towards rock and roll and pop music that also had a rich harmonic and melodic quantity, quality of music. Bands like, of course, Queen, as I already said, Supertramp and ELO, as a little kid, were the first bands that made sense to me. All production masterpieces. So, first listening to Out of a Blue as a little kid by ELO was just, you know, fantastic. Orchestral arrangements with huge background vocals, and it's a great baptism of, you know, production. So, what age were you when you started producing because i'm assuming that the the music thing was your teens teens and preteens yeah so i didn't start playing music until i was 15 so i had oh, like so a, you were just a music a I was fan just a, and yeah. researcher yeah my my father I, I just sort of followed suit with my father you know i i was obsessive about music and art and everything that comes with it and i i feel blessed I, I really do feel blessed through that and it's it's a good it's a good story to relay because we did grow up very poor but it doesn't stop you being culturally aware and and getting you know getting all of this influx of information and being able to you know assimilate it in a way that makes sense to me and the, and again it, you grew up poor and pre-internet and you were still able to get enough information to learn enough about what you were interested in to decide that you had to do something which is actually kind of incredible like build a build a guitar yeah absolutely build a guitar and and learn to play i mean when i first mm -hmm. started learning to play it was literally you know the the stories you hear from everybody all of those guys you know, I, I remember buying Needle and the Damage Done, you know, buying, you know, Harvest by Neil Young, getting Needle and the Damage Done, sticking it on my grandfather's hi-fi that he had given me. And it was an old-fashioned hi-fi, so it would play at, you know, 16, 33, 45, and 78. So I put the album on, and you played at 16 at half speed, and I worked out, dun dun you know that part you played at half speed and you sit there and work out 
how to play that song on acoustic guitar and it was painful and slow but it meant I was able to develop an ear because I wasn't watching a video where somebody's showing me the fingering I'm having to listen and develop an ear and I will say and I I like telling people this I was not guaranteed not that kid that just picked up guitar and it was like bada boom bada bing you know I had friends there's a good friend of mine maybe who, who listens to this called John Hill and John I'd known since I was a little kid who started playing guitar at the same time as me, and he just had an ear. And he wasn't even surrounded by music like I was growing up. He was just one of those kids that was kind of frustrating because you'd put on uh, a song and he'd pick up a guitar and work it out within nanoseconds. And I wasn't naturally gifted. And it's one of those things that I had to work really, really, really hard at to get my my thing was art because I grew up in an arts family and my dad was painting and drawing all the time I was like the kid at school that was like the best artist in my little school but I wanted to be a musician I wanted to play music so the only thing I knew how to do was take all of those hours that I used to paint and draw and take that sort of that passion and that hard work that I'd done and then apply it to music. So even though I started off maybe with the right mindset of wanting to do music, I didn't seem to have, it felt like I didn't have the natural quote-unquote talent that people surrounding me. Everybody else seemed to be getting it so much quicker than I did. And I had to work really, really hard. And now I look at it and I think, wow, I was so lucky. I was so lucky because if I had been like some of my friends, all of For instance, all of my friends that were either A, naturally gifted, or secondly, and more importantly, very wealthy, because I grew up in a really nice area, none of those kids that their first guitar was a Les Paul Custom. I had friends that first guitar was a Les Paul Custom. Daddy, I want to play guitar. Oh, okay. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Well, I I grew up in a sort of stockbroker belt area, so... You know, one of one of my friends at school's dad was the chairman of ICI. Even though it was a, you know, what Americans call a public school, in England that's a private school. It's a long explanation. To, but anyway, even though, it, it, because it was a nice area, it had, you know, there was a lot of wealthier kids around. And yes, their first guitars could be Strats, Les Pauls. Their acoustic could be a J45. You know, that's, I had friends that had those guitars or drum kits or whatever. Not every kid, don't get me wrong. But none of those kids became musicians. I've got a parallel for you. Um, because I find it interesting. So I did not grow up poor, but my dad made me work for it and when i wanted to play guitar they he was he's a musician he's a symphony conductor so i wasn't poor and i was encouraged to do music however when i wanted to do guitar he didn't believe that it was going to be a serious thing so he bought me a crappy classical and I had to prove that that I was going to stick with it for over six months. So I had to do the classical stuff. And then uh, he didn't buy me a nice guitar. I think it was uh, a really crappy Squire. And then if I wanted to upgrade beyond that, it was on me to figure out how to make the money. And from there, I got a, he bought me a crate practice amp like one of the small ones and from that point on he didn't buy me another guitar another amp nothing uh so if i wanted to play in bands if i wanted a guitar that was decent that was all on me and uh i had a lot of friends who grew up with similar pretty good upbringings and they were given really nice guitars and rigs from the beginning like they would get les paul customs and they would get like marshalls and things like that yep. at the age of 13 and uh i outlasted all every single one of them and actually learned how to play and turned it into a career not a single one of those kids who was given a nice guitar at the beginning ended up doing anything with it yeah that's exactly my experiences and and like again i think I don't want to emphasize the the Paul thing because we did, but it sounds like our fathers are almost identical people because my father's a painter, your 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 father's in classical music, and my father was obsessed with arts. I mean, my father could talk about William Blake and Leonardo da Vinci 
you know, till it came out of his ears. And, you, <laughs> you, you know, we... And I love that sort of feeling of heritage. And that heritage can move forward. I think, I think that, you know, a, kid, a little kid in the 70s and a teenager in the 80s, which is what I was. I was a little kid in the 70s and I was a teenager in the 80s. So I got to be immersed in, in music of those two decades. So when I started playing music and making music professionally in the 90s, which is where my career began in the 90s, I was sort of steeped in that. So you, I only really had the olden music was 50s, 60s. That was the olden times music, you know. And so the Beatles I discovered, I remember, actually just before John Lennon died, I remember 90, in 1980, I just got into the Beatles as a little kid. I was like, oh, Beatles, what's that, you know. And then John Lennon died just a couple of months after my initial discovery, which was another huge thing. You know, you don't, you don't realize how powerful that is until you look back on it. And it reinforces the discovery because it was like the world news was just all about John Lennon's murder. But to cut a long story short, it really, it does mirror because the money thing is kind of irrelevant because what was driving me was that passion that my father installed. It sounds like your father had the same passion for, for the arts, for classical oh, yeah. music. And it's just, it overspills. Now, and art, by the way. He, uh, he was not an artist, but... So he made classical music and collected art. So, as opposed to your dad, who it sounds like made art and collected classical music. Oh, yeah. My, my dad's classical music collection was insane. I remember... My first memory was just looking up and seeing, like, wow, what are all these, like, we didn't call it vinyl in those days, because the, the <laughs> vinyl's a term that's sort of evolved over the last 10 or 20 years. As a sort yeah. of alter it was, you bought albums, and they became vinyl when CDs came in, but before that, they were just albums. <laughs> and, uh, and cassettes never really took off in, in England. That was a very American thing. No, nobody bought cassettes in England. We just would buy vinyl albums. But anyway... Yeah, so exactly. And I think it's a blessing. I think, But I don't actually think ultimately that was the quotient. The thing that to me was by not having the advantages, and I'm not talking about the money side of it, but like the not having the advantages of the immediacy of knowing everything, it, I, I feel like I was blessed because, like I said, it wasn't natural for me, so I had to work harder. And so I had a choice. And for me, all of this upbringing, all of these experiences are the reason why, you know, you gave me that wonderful, incredibly comprehensive intro. And all of those things just come from that upbringing. And also, to be honest, I'm, I'll be honest about this, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, being surrounded by wealthy kids that got whatever they wanted and then gave up within six months to a year. Um, and then sometimes their parents would, would do the opposite of what your, yours and my father would do. Is like they, they bought them a nice guitar. If they didn't take to it, they would buy them an even nicer guitar to see if the nicer guitar would, would encourage them more. You know, I saw a lot of that. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that too. It was like, oh, but dad, yeah. <laughs> dad, I, li I like this Strat, but I'm really into this guitar player now, and he plays a Les Paul. That's the reason why I don't play as much. Oh, okay, cool. Here's Les Paul. He's like, really? <laughs> You know, that sort of mentality. But again, I don't want to make it about rich versus poor. It's about, it's the sort of surroundings. Because I, like I said, I didn't feel like we didn't have any money because everything we wanted was paid for. You know, we, we, we ate. And it, it, it's just like my father couldn't click his fingers and buy what I wanted. But I, I didn't really want for those things. I wanted for information. I wanted for knowledge. That was what inspired me. When my dad bought me that album, I just looked at the pictures. I heard the music. It was guitar-based. I wanted to be a guitar player. You know, it, it seemed to make perfect sense from everything I had been. I'd heard and other forms of music up until that point. It just clicked with me immediately. And it is the reason why I do music. It's purely and simply a night at the opera. Hearing that album for the first time as a little kid, I remember everything about hearing it for the first time. So how did it lead to production? Well, I think, like I was intimating earlier, I think it was just because of the classical jazz kind of upbringing, the, mu the pop music and the rock music that inspired me the most was A, hooky, big, strong melodies like great classical music has, you know, the best classical music has everything, as you know. It's amazing yes. melody as well as emotional content and stuff like that. It is covers all the bases. I mean, to me, Beethoven, Fifth or Ninth Symphonies, 
you know, you could put me on a desert island, I'd be happy with those two for the rest of my life. They have everything we need. They have all-time masterpieces. All-time masterpieces. You know, what you and I do is kind of just pales in comparison to a, especially the ninth, to a guy who completely lost his hearing at that point. Just being able to write from inside of his mind is just masterful. And the word genius is bandied around quite heavily, uh, but he's he's one of a handful of true musical geniuses. And so, and, and it's great. You do you do really complex uh, metal, you know, and your your, your complex music uh, probably owes a lot to classical. It owes a lot, but I will say that it bothers me when people say that metal and classical are like the same thing. Oh, I definitely don't. They're, I don't, they're, definitely don't they're, think it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, they're not. It owes a lot to it, but it also owes as much to rhythm and blues. You know, as it does to classical. But I mean, the reasons that I got into metal, though, aren't because of classical. I got into metal because I was pissed off. <laughs> um, and uh, it took, it, I, I got, I was indoctrinated into classical music and, from a really young age. But at the age that I started to get pissed off at the world, it didn't, it didn't speak to me. Um, metal did. And, it wasn't the same. I mean, I've learned to play classical instruments. Uh, I learned violin and piano from a young age, and I have studied classical music very, very seriously, and they're just not the same. There's so many reasons for why they're not the same, but I do think that metal does owe a lot to classical. I, I'll agree with you there. Oh, yeah. No, that's 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 literally what, what, what I think and, uh, is, yeah, it... What I like about it is, with with the best metal, is that you can explore all the same space that classical can, because you're able to do seven, eight minute, nine, ten minute pieces that take you on journeys and stuff like that. There's not yes. there's not much music that does that. And what I like about the uh, the great great metal is that it can do that, and therefore it can expand people's minds as opposed to this three minute twenty pop world that. 99% of the world lives in and it's not I have nothing I actually think the best music is when it does everything I, I talk about this all the time when I'm producing and it's a big big point that I'll make with every artist this is my firm belief my firm belief is it's easy to do extremes it's easy to be a Brooklyn, really super cool indie band that's like got the coolest influences of Joy Division and New Order, obviously, and maybe The Cure mixed in with, you know, all of these different genres that that's really, really easy to do just purely, you know, art music. It's also really, really easy to do pure pop. It is. The 6415 radio stuff, most of my friends... In fact, pretty much all of my friends that write pop music and produce pop music reference current pop music to write current pop music, which is why, as all of us know, pop music has been stagnant now for at least 10 years. Like, if you play a pop song from 10 years ago and a pop song from today, it sounds like it's the same production. Nothing has changed in over 10 years. It's been one of the worst periods for music. For every Adele that comes out and breaks the barriers, for every Niles Barkley Crazy, for every Lord Royals, for every one of those songs that really sounds refreshing, most of it sounds exactly the same. And I'm not anti-pop, don't get me wrong, but the difficult thing for me, or the most, the most exciting thing, I should say, for me, is when those two things come together. And it is when you get Lord Royals, when you get just literally a drum beat with a one sub note and then a beautiful melody and an amazing message and incredible harmonies like Royals. When that comes on the radio, that just seemed like a breath of fresh air, like, ah, oh, something other than you know, all of this stuff that's happening. It was it was a wonderful thing. And it seems like, to me, when metal's done to its highest extent, it can do all of those things as well. And that, to me, is a huge, huge deal, is, like, bringing all of those things and making everything hit at once. So did you feel like, um, I guess, because I know I did, did you feel like production maybe was your way of expressing all those various 
emotions and feelings maybe in a way that just being an instrumentalist couldn't? Absolutely. That's very well put. And a great question and, and a yes, yes, and yes answer. That is the great th thing about production, especially coming from a musician. And this is, you probably have this debate as well because you're a musician producer. And it's difficult because I do, I do honestly wholeheartedly believe that you can be a great producer and not be an instrumentalist. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that being a good instrumentalist is not a massive help as a producer. Oh, man. It's... I don't know how I would do it without it. Yeah, and it's difficult because we there are in the old the old uh, way of making records. It it was very easy to you know you could be one of those. I'm not going to point obvious names, but you could be one of those kind of errant producers that turned up two to three hours a day. And I've made records as an engineer with those kind of producers. And you could do an overview thing, and you could be more of a business guy. You could. You could be more of a guy that puts people together, you know, like the classic kind of old school 50s and 60s producers that were more about like, oh, picking the right engineer, which is obviously a talent, picking the right musician, picking the right arranger, and then taking the production credit. I mean, you could be that guy when the budget was, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which up until mid-2000s was commonplace. I mean, mm -hmm. I've made, I, I've recently made records with big budgets, don't get me wrong. When I did the Aerosmith album, it, it was a ridiculous budget. But it's Aerosmith. And, but when I did the Ace Freely records, they're still like bigger than an indie indie budget, but a fraction of what it would have been, you know, 10, 10 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> 10 to 15 years ago. I think the turning point for me that I saw was about 2004 five. Because we peaked in CD sales in about 2003, 2004, and then the drop-off was so quick. It was insane. If you, you can go to Wikipedia. Anybody um, listening should just go to Wikipedia and look up the sales thing, and you'll see this steady, incredible growth to about 2003, 2004, and then this amazing, rapid drop-off that just went through the floor. It, and it, well, the writing was on the wall, but... And that, the budgets were just slashed almost immediately because digital didn't in, in initially bring, you know, wasn't bringing any kind of, uh, it, it wasn't able to make up for the shortfall. Now, with Spotify, as you're probably reading, anybody who's listening to this, and I'm sure, AL, you're, you're aware, Spotify is making the music industry a lot of money now. It's moving into those billions kind of figure so as much as everybody complains about it it is doing its job it is becoming very popular and streaming is starting to create a lot of income so that that's that's a great thing but i don't know if we'll ever return to those kind of budgets because it's just a different it's a different world now there, there will still be a room for those kind of old school producers that don't have to have those kind of mindsets you know, don't have to have that skill set. But today I'm going to go and meet, I'm about to do, I'm not going to say who it is because it's not done yet, but I'm about to work with a, an artist that's being produced by David Foster. Now the thing about David is he is an incredible musician and an arranger and a piano player and all of those things. So not only is he able to work with these huge legacy artists, he's able to sit in a room and play the songs with them and work on those kind of arrangements. That's... So even though he's what, quote-unquote, old school, as people would might say, that kind of level of talent means that he's going to continue up until the day he dies, you know, being able to integrate with any artist or any musician. But the older school way of doing things where you could be the guy that sat back, you know, literally quite often sitting on the couch at the back not saying anything, <laughs> you know, to not showing up to the studio, that... There's no room for that anymore. And and in some ways, thank God. <laughs> not not just is there no room for it, but I mean, if you want to just approach things practically with the fact that there's less budget to go around, if you want to make a good living at this, you want to have multiple skills so that things don't get hired out to other people on the productions. Why pay a session musician for instance, if you can play the guitar, why pay an arranger if you can do the arrangements? So I feel like to make the most of a landscape where, or a climate where there's lower budgets, you should have as many skills under your belt as possible. Yeah, no, I agree.
I absolutely agree. So I, I, I obviously, my whole message is one of encouragement. So if you're not a musician, it's not the end of the world. You can still be an engineer. You can still be a producer. And a lot of guys making EDM, in particular, do incredible music, mm -hmm. but wouldn't know an A major from a C major. You know, it's it doesn't mean that they can't hear something they like. So I still want to encourage people to make music because... Like, like I admitted, I didn't have any natural gift. Everything was hard work. And I'm glad of it because I... Here's a good quote, and I've said this before, but I love this one. Um, Segovia, the, obviously the most famous, not only most famous classical guitar player of all time, but, you know, the godfather of classical guitar, the guy that reintroduced classical guitar back to the world, and probably more importantly, taught every major classical guitar player, said, and I quote, all of my best students gave up. So it's two, two things about that. Obviously, it's funny because you're like, well... Interesting. I've never heard that quote before, but that's funny. Yeah, but it's funny on two levels. It's funny for, for guys like us because we're like, ha-ha, you know, that means that all of the guys that are still going weren't his best students. So it's, that's kind of hilarious. But his, the, big, the big takeaway from that is... When something comes easy to you, it's amazing how you don't stick at it. You know, my, my, my son is re a really gifted artist. You know, he's surrounded by me and my, his grandfather, my father, and our whole legacy. All of my family are artists. And so he really was like drawing with perspective at like four years old. And his teachers were like, what the? He's drawing perspective. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we draw all the time and it's around it. And now, of course, he's into computer programming and he does, uh, he does course, he's done courses at 10, you know, on computer programming. And he hasn't picked up a pencil in, in, in over a year. And I, I can't, it's up to, it's his own journey, but I see it as that same kind of metaphor. It's something that came easy to him. He did art, it's in the blood, it's, he's surrounded by art. And now he's like, I want to do my thing. And dad, you're not as good on computers and I'm already better than you and I'm happy. You know, he's like, <laughs> that's, you know, finding your own path. You with death metal out of classical, you want to rebel and do your own thing and make your own statement. And that's that kind of thing. You know, I, I think that, I, lo I love the Segovia that's question. That's exactly right. Yeah. I th you know, I, I, I think, uh, have, have you ever, and I've used this quote again, so I'm sorry if anybody's heard this before, um, but you you know the movie The Third Man? Never seen it. You, sh you should watch it. Off, off, uh, before we started the podcast, we had a lot of history conversations. You should definitely watch it because it's filmed in 1949 in Vienna, in a ruined city, obviously. And it, I'm making a note to myself yeah, right now. The third man, and it's it's about 1947, and it's it's written by Graham Greene. Um, if you know Graham Greene's history, it's pretty exciting. You know, he was a spy during the Second World War, and and, and it's directed by Carol Reed, and it stars Orson Welles. So it stars the is by the best writer of the period, and starring the best actor of the period, and and like I said, filmed in the actual environment that it's based on, pretty close to the period it's supposed to be. And there's a scene where Orson Welles ad-libs, and he tries to justify why he's doing all these terrible actions. You need to watch the movie to... I, I won't go into all of the stuff that he does. It's pretty bad. But yeah, he no spoilers. No spoilers. So he tries to justify it, but he, he just ad-libs this scene that they keep, and the scene is... So in 50 years under the Borgias in Italy, they had rape and pillage and murder and all of this stuff, burning people, killing people that weren't Catholic, all of this terrible stuff. But in those 50 years, they produced the Renaissance, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. In 500 years of peace and tranquility in Switzerland, what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, it's there's a lot to be said for for being too comfortable and losing your will to create. I feel like every entrepreneur I know, every great musician I know, regardless of their background, there's one thing that unites them all, which is this fire that they have inside, and that fire keeps them never satisfied, never comfortable, and whether it's that they have an ideal they're trying to reach that they're nowhere near or their background 
is was one of where they had to work for everything because they were never handed anything or whatever it might be that fire has never died inside of them and i feel like sometimes being too comfortable can extinguish that i do agree i've seen it many times yeah i know i i agree it takes a very special guy to um or girl sorry you know to really have both <laughs> you know i i we we both know obviously people that are very calm and very organized and very on top of everything that are very successful and that's that's a a wonderful trait and very focused on one thing but for me it's like i think maybe maybe this is maybe this is either maybe this is the poor thing i don't know what it is but I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So if I'm not doing multiple things and working on multiple projects and moving all my business interests forward to all time, I, I am concerned that it's all going to go away. And it, it, it's, I've never, I don't think that way, but I'm just rationalizing what must be going on in my mind. It's to me, it's like, I need to always be moving forward. I always have to be driven. I, I don't have any time to rest on my laurels. So sort of getting back to where, where we're going on this, for me, it's like with the teaching side and the mentoring side that's really important to me is like I I 100% understand where people are forced to be now because where they're forced to be is what I had to do because I didn't grow up with any of the advantages like we're talking about except the advantage of wanting to learn and having a father that even though he wasn't like showing me things specifically because he was passionate about art in general all arts and architecture and everything uh, bear in mind we didn't travel i didn't go to italy to see this stuff until i made enough money myself to get on a plane so that all this stuff was available at libraries for free local libraries i would go and get books and magazines or newspapers that i bought with my pocket money so it was the desire the passion, the desire, whatever you want to call it, that made this happen. So when I get people commenting on my videos or emailing me, I come from that place. And I, I, I'm i never dismissive of anybody, but I try to remind them that everything there is available. If it's there available for me, five of us growing up in a two-bedroom house, you know, me sharing my bedroom with my, my brother who's 10 years younger than me, you know, and my sister sleeping in the in the box room, as we called it. If I can do that in this little tiny house and have the library and, you know, down the street and take my pocket money and buy a music magazine or whatever to do my research about the music that I liked, and then building my first guitar with my father, who admittedly built, built it mainly, you know, but being involved, if you like, in building. If I can do all of those things, then... In, also in a little town, a little village that's not London, that's not a major metropolis for music. If I can do all of those things, then you can sure as heck do it in anywhere where you're able to communicate with me online. Because all of that information now is a 100,000 times more readily available online. But I think obviously the next point that's probably going through your mind and anybody listening is, well, how do we, how do we cut through all of the garbage? And that's a question I'd like to sort of pose for both of us, because I don't think... I, it, it is difficult. We were talking off offline before this, as we were sort of getting to know each other a little bit. And one of the things is, is there are a lot of people that benefit from trashing other people and sort of separating and dividing. And my whole philosophy is the opposite. I just want everybody to come together because... The democratization of the music industry is here to stay. It's the reason why I like what Joey does and why I like what Stephen Slate does. is because making incredible sounding plugins that are affordable to the whole world is what is changing the music, music industry. And don't get me wrong, I use Wave plug Waves plugins every day and I love them. And I, I don't look at them as the evil empire, I look at them as making high quality stuff. And then I look at Stephen and Joey as making affordable quality stuff that is going to allow anybody to start making music. And to me, that, that that's worth I can't, it's worth its weight in gold times a million in platinum. Because I was a talented kid that created my talent by working really hard, but there's talented kids all over the world, and most of them fell through the cracks. I have one story, my famous stories, sorry. I have one story. Would love to hear it. <laughs> that, I, that I like to tell. 
And so when I was 16, I left home uh, for one reason or another. I rebelled against my father. I left home. So I left home super young. And my girlfriend and I at the time, she was a few years older than me. She got into an art college in the north of England. So I just, I followed her up. So just to get out. So I followed my girlfriend up to this art college and we get this little bedsit. And a bedsit is a one bedroom all like a studio apartment, but even less. There was no bathroom in it. There was The bathroom was like down the hall and all of the bedsits had one bathroom that you shared. And you lived in this one room and you didn't have a cooker, you didn't have a refrigerator, you didn't have anything. And it was in Carlisle and it was the height of winter and freezing cold. But underneath this bedsit was this little music store. So anybody from Carlisle will know what I mean. It was called Northern Sounds. It was the north of England, it was called Northern Sounds which it was a famous little store, little tiny store. And in this store was a kid who seemed so old to me. He was 19 when I was 16. <laughs> and <laughs> his name was Nick Rimmer. And Nick Rimmer was this keyboard player. So I remember I would go down every day and ask to try, try out a guitar. Obviously, I had no money. And I'd plug it in and I would just play guitar for a couple of hours and then sheepishly give him back the guitar and say, you know, um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's what I'm looking for, <laughs> you know? And then I'd go back up to my bed sit and sit alone playing guitar. And like every couple of days, and after a while, after a few weeks, of course, he's like, you're not going to buy a guitar. I was like, no, I don't have any money. And he's like, well, you're pretty good. You know, I play keyboards. So he... He played keyboards, and this guy could sight read, sight sing, and just had the best ear of any keyboard player I've ever heard in my life at that point. And he would he would like get out Algero sheets and just put them out, and then just sight sing and play Algero or anything. Just just give it to him, you know. It started metronome at the tempo, play it back as though he knew the piece back to front. But I remember at the time thinking very clearly this thing. I remember thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, this guy's incredible. He's in a whole next level. But, you know, in Los Angeles or New York, there's like a thousand people like him. And they're all so much better. The fact that he can sight sing, sight read, has perfect pitch, you know, can just do anything. That's, that's cool. But there's this whole next level. Well, you know what? It's now 30 years later and I've never met a keyboard player as good as him. Never, ever met. So when I get people writing to me that have talent, and when I do my videos, and when I see people like Stephen and Joey, I just go, these are our new heroes, because we didn't think it was possible. Nick didn't think it was possible. If Nick at that point had jumped on a plane and flown to Los Angeles and landed in LA at 19 years old and gone to one of these clubs and sat in and played, he would be... Oh, yeah, have you heard Nick Rimmer? This guy's like one of the best jazz piano players in the world. But he didn't because of the dogma and the crap that people feed you and still continue to feed you that we were going, no, 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 we, we're not good enough. No, 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 we're not good enough. So for me, that's the whole point of doing these channels of, of you know, and, and like knocking, pushing back every single time goes, well, you know, I heard this guy. He told me that you have to and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and blah, blah, blah. And I posted on this forum and they all told me I was wrong and I didn't know what I was talking about. And it's like... I just, I feel, I really feel and I relate to those people that are telling me this stuff every day. Like, I don't know, and I wanted to buy this thing, but they told me it was wrong, and I didn't know what I was talking about, and that this microphone sucked, and this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm just like, oh, it, it really pains me, because I saw a guy 30 years ago not pursue a career because he didn't think it was possible. But I'm telling you, it's possible. I mean, he plays a church organist now, and he has a normal nine-to-five job, and he's married with kids. And that's fine, and I'm sure he's happy. But now, having lived the dream and moved to Los Angeles and been here and worked 15-hour days for the last 20-plus years of living in L.A., yes, it's possible. But he had a head start on everybody. So, to me, it's a big, big message. It's like, if you listen to this, move away from the negativity... Move away from people that are experts, because I'm not an expert. I'm sure, Al, you don't think you're an expert. I'm sure Joey doesn't. No. We're just guys trying to make great music, and I screw up all the time. I do videos where I show it wrong. 
you know, and I, oops, I forgot to do that. Oh, cool. Oh, I didn't bypass that plugging. Oh, oh my God. I did one yesterday and I just realized that I left, um, I left one of the pieces of gear with a slider pushed down. So even though it's probably not an audible difference, it does, I didn't, we didn't do it properly and I made a mistake. And I'm going to go back after this and make a comment and go, you know what? I just checked the video. You're 100% right. I made a mistake. I'm really sorry about that. You know, oops, I'm not an expert. But that's the reality is I'm not an expert. And nobody listening to this is probably an expert either. And you know what? When Jeff Emmerich was 19 years old making Revolver with the Beatles, he wasn't an expert either. But last time I checked, when they said, what are the greatest albums of all time? They always go, Revolver and Pet Sounds, made by people who weren't experts. Crazy that, isn't it? It's really weird. <laughs> you know, it's. It, I find that one of the big things that holds a lot of people back is that they feel like things need to be perfect yeah or that they need to be that as good as the very best in the world and that's that's not true in reality all you have to do is get started i agree and over time you will improve get started and devote yourself to it like crazy learn everything you can and obviously do all the work but really the thing holding people back isn't that things aren't perfect it's that they don't get started yeah and the i agree and and it's it's difficult because we have all these illusions you know for the longest time up through the mid 2000s there was this sort of band of elite producers engineers and mixers you, you know you grew up in that period so you know what i'm talking about who made every record yes every record and was there's a- still there's still clicks like that like in the metal scene for instance there's like the 5 to 10 guys that make all the big records right and I have an academy. I have the Produce Like a Pro Academy. And I'm telling you, and you, you, you guys do the same thing with, with the Nail the Mix. I'm telling you, there's, there's guys and girls that send me in mixes that are just as good as any mixes I get from any of those guys. And that's just a reality. And I remind them all of the time. I'm like, this is an amazing mix. I have my friend Phil Allen, who's, uh, who won a Grammy for Adele. He just, he sat in as a, a, um, on one of my mix critique things. And the first mix that we played at random, he listened to it and he goes, wow, I'm really jealous of this mix. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I, I don't know who you are, but your mix kind of sounds like what I try to go to. There's a polish to this, which sounds so professional and so radio ready. I, I don't even know if I can do this. And he's won a Grammy. And it's just like, and, and I'll tell you, I'm not going to say who the mixers are, but, you know, I've worked with every major mixer on the planet, and, and anybody that follows me knows that I'm a huge fan of Spike Stent. I think he is the best mixer in the world, and Mark Endert is right up there with him. Those two are the most, Mark is the most anally retentive, will take three days, and your mix will come back, and it will blow your mind. It'll be like more of what you've done. When Spike does a mix, he just screws it up, and it comes back like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Oh, you distorted that, and you back, oh my God. And so they do, they both do different things. Like Mark's, Mark's thing is more of what you've gone, and Spike is like, well, I bet you couldn't even imagine what you could have gone. Look at this. And that makes them unbelievable. And both of them I've done, both of them I've had first mixes. Like, I, I don't even know how to comment. This, this is so far beyond my expectations. I'd be nitpicking now. I'd be looking for a problem. And they've continually done mixes for me as a producer or when I worked at labels and stuff. I've been blown away by their results every time. Now, you go down the list now of all the other great guys. I've got guys that I've been minimum seven mixes in. And one of the biggest pop mixes, 13 mixes in before we had something where we're like, it should be on the radio. And so it's like, I don't know, I, you know, but find somebody in your academy or my academy that's one of our best mixes and give them those same files and then give them seven to 13 opportunities to make it amazing. You get where I'm going. It's like... You're- I, guarantee, I know for a fact, and I'm already thinking of him, we have a few students, one in particular, but a few who are good enough now. And I don't mean our pro students, because we definitely have some pros who subscribe. So just do I, yeah. Bec- just because they want to, uh, you know, they love learning. They love yep. mixing. But them aside, so we won't count them, out of our student level subscribers slash students, we definitely have a few that are good enough right now 
that if you gave them 13 tries with detailed notes, they would get they would get to the finish line with a totally world class, competent, great mix. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that too is that right there goes back to something that I always tell people, which is that if you really, really want to make it as a mixer producer. Uh, or really anything in the entertainment industry these days, it's almost like your skills are assumed. You better work on those people's skills because you probably are pretty awesome. And there's a good chance that you can get pretty awesome at the music part. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things, though, um, one of the things that uh, I, I like also teaching is that part mixed in with the understanding how taste and creativity is is a key is a really key component because that's the part that isn't taught i feel like anybody could launch a youtube tuition channel tomorrow just based off boost 60 hertz on a kick ducks anywhere between 250 to 350 on the kick boost 25 and 7k depending on what kind of <laughs> kick you want take a snare boost 110 or 220 depending on which low end you want boost to 7k or 8k yeah. <laughs> and, and people do and it's fine if you've got a personality to teach you can find all the information online but what they don't teach is taste understanding and and all of the great things well warren it's been awesome having you on and i was going to say that we should probably do this again we because should definitely I bet you do that this again. we could yeah i bet you that we could talk for about three hours and still have we you and i could talk off, offline for about six months yeah, yeah. i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we got we got a lot in common, a lot in common, and a lot of uh, a lot of the same. Well, historical loves, I think, is a, is a big thing because you know the, that that is our that is our future. You know, is our past yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, I, I study history all the time. So all links to if you want to find more out about Warren, if you want to check out Produce Like a Pro, which I highly recommend, just go to the show notes. All links will be there. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you very much, Al. I really appreciate it. And everybody have a marvelous time recording and mixing. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.